you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those, Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue through our series in the book of Ephesians, and uh, Lord willing, we will finish out chapter 2 this morning. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus and, and really to the churches of the surrounding area and what it means to be in Christ. So we've seen that there is redemption in Christ, there's growing in Christ for the believer, that believers are made alive in Christ, and we're saved in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. And today we're going to look at what it looks like to be one in Christ. And so to be one with, is a, it's an idiom, and Merriam-Webster says that it means in a peaceful state or as part of something else. So probably when we talk about being one with, maybe one of the most obvious connections is one with someone in marriage, that, that a husband and a wife are now one, that the two have become one flesh. And so Mark 10, 8 says, and the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two, but one. So what does it mean to be one with someone? Well, John Calvin, when he was writing about the first marriage of Adam and Eve, he said, Something was taken from Adam in order that he might embrace with greater benevolence a part of himself. He now saw himself who had before been only half complete, rendered whole in his wife. What a beautiful imagery that the man was incomplete without his wife, that he needed her. He was not complete and he had to give of himself to find fulfillment and wholeness. In marriage. And so we'll get into that more in Ephesians chapter 5, but we understand that they are now one. So it's not some mere, you know, sentiment or relational commitment, but there is actual a oneness that takes place in marriage. So what about the bride of Christ? What about the church? That the church, as we're about to read, is now one, that there were two and now they're one body. And so what does it mean that we are one as the church? Well, as Paul is describing here, he's describing the union that we have in the salvation in the first part of this chapter with Christ. And now he's going to talk about the implications of salvation in our relationships with one another. And so they kind of follow the same pattern. If you look at verses 1 through 10 and verses 11 through 22, it's, it's Paul giving the gospel in another way. He's saying, listen, this was, this was salvation between you and God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And now he's going to talk about the relational dimensions of our salvation and how we've been brought in and brought into a relationship. So verses 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles, look right there and we'll see the similarities. 1 and 2 say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So comparatively, you look down at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So they both begin with the problem. There's a, there's a major issue going on here. If you are not in Christ, then you are dead spiritually. And so there's an issue here. And when he addresses the Gentiles in the church of Ephesus, he's saying, listen, you, you need to understand that there was a time when you were cut off. You were completely separated from the commonwealth. All right, so then he moves to good news. So you got the bad news. Now here's the good news, verses four and five. But God... 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's good news. It's not anything of yourself. It was but God. God intervened. He did something on your behalf that you couldn't do for yourself. So let's compare that with verses 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So as we see chapter 2, Paul is getting across the same message. He's saying, listen, in verses 1 through 10, he's revealing the reconciliation to, the, to a right relationship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ. This is, this is how you're made right with God. Now, He moves into 11 through 22. This is revealing our reconciliation in a right relationship with others through the Son, Jesus Christ. So there are implications and dimensions of our salvation that are relational with one another. You ever think about it that way? It's not just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, even though it is. It's not just something personal. It's something that you've been called and brought into corporately. You've now been brought into the body of Christ. You're now joined with others. Now he's taken the two and he's become one. He's taken Jew and Gentile and now he's made one, the church. And so this is what it means to be one in Christ. That's just a quick, here's where we're going, beginning. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made out, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and preached in peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the dimensions of our salvation that we cannot even completely understand and fathom today. What you have accomplished through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, is now a reality. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to have just a glimpse and an understanding through your Word today of what it means to be in Christ, to be one as a body in Christ. And so, Lord, This is your church. You are the head of the church. And so we humbly submit to you as your body that we would do as you lead and as you guide. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see is one in Christ by his blood. We are one in Christ by his blood. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision 
by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. There is a distinction that is made from the very beginning that there is a separation between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. So, A, because of the blood, there is a division, a separation between those who are in the flesh and those who are in Christ. So, in this case, it was Israel and Gentiles or Jews and barbarians. There was a, a deciphering factor that distinguished them between one another, and that outward appearance of circumcision was the, the distinguishing factor, that they had flesh that had been cut off, that they were marked. They were God's people. They were in a covenant relationship with God. But Gentiles were not in that. They were outside of that. So we could say it's the difference between saved and unsaved in, in our minds today. But now the church is not a people marked by an outer circumcision. No, now the church is marked by an inner change, an inner circumcision, as Colossians would say, in Colossians 1, 11 through 14. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. There is a distinction. So right off the bat, we see that we need to recognize that there are some divisions and the divisions that there are are between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, that there are those who are lost. By all means, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. By, by record of this, they have been separated. They are not in a right relationship with the Lord. And then those who have been brought in, those who are God's holy people, who are one church. So what are these separations? Well, we need to be aware of the separation of sinful partnership. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Partnerships here. This really means more than just marrying an unbeliever. It means really any relationship where there's an unbeliever that is influencing your thinking. Any intimate relationship where you have such a close relationship that that person's worldview is now becoming your worldview. That that person's thoughts on life and their theology, their thoughts are now creeping their way into your thoughts and your theology. And so if you become unequally yoked, you'll find yourself going around in circles in your spirituality because you're not progressing forward because you're being hindered. And so Paul's saying, listen, don't have relationships where you're so intimately involved that their influence is changing your views of God. Well, think about that when it refers to the church. We, we can name denominations, we can name churches that have been so influenced by partnerships with the world that we can see that they're no longer even preaching the gospel as it's written in, in Scripture. They've turned away from that. They've allowed what the world is saying is right and valuable to be their values and what they call right. Paul is saying here that the influences should never make their way in to the church. The influences of the world should not make their way into the influences of the church because there is a separation. You have been brought near. You've been made one. It's the old adage to be, be uh, in the world, not of the world, right? The old saying, right? that 
It's like one pastor said, it's good for a boat to be in the water, but not of the water. Because once the water gets in the boat, then it's, it's going to sink. And so once, once you begin to allow the world into your heart, the influence, where's your faith? So there's separation from sinful partnerships. There's also a separation from sinful participation. Well, Jesus says this is inevitable. That as the church grows and as the church exists, there will be those that are acting like they're part of the church that are actually not part of the church. They're, they're actually not one. He says this in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, when the weeds also appeared, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters first to collect the weeds, tie them up in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into the barn. We see that Jesus here says that there's going to be separation, but in, in all manners of, of the church, some separation won't even happen until the harvest. It won't even happen until eternity where, where there is a separation between those who actually are in the blood of Christ and those who are not. So what is the church to do to address this? Well, there should be a separation from sinful practice. There should be a clear separation in how the church operates when it comes to sin. Probably most famous is how Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He writes this letter to the church of Corinth that is so bombarded by the flesh and so bombarded by sexual promiscuity of their culture that it's working its way into the church. And so he's like, listen, we have to address some issues because you're beginning to have partnerships with the world and it's beginning to affect what's happening inside the church. So there should be a separation here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Skip down to verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You're boasting. It's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new, unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul's charge to the church was there should be a separation. That there shouldn't be partnerships of, of influence in the church that, that bring it to a, a worldly pattern of life, but there should be a distinction in in the way that we're called to be one. That we are in the blood of Christ, that our sins have been covered, and so therefore we would no longer want to participate 
in a lifestyle like that. So he says here in verse 12, so remember, Gentile believer, listen, remember this, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It does us good to remember who we were before we came to Christ. It does us good to remember that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. It does us good to remember that we were separated, that we were alienated, that we were strangers, that we had no hope, that we were, in all accounts, without God. Without God. Remember that that's the way it was. And so, because of the blood, B, there is unity in the body between those who are different. There's unity because no matter what your background was, we were all separated. No matter what sin issues you had in the past, we all had sin issues. No matter what it is, we've all been brought in. We've all been brought near and grafted in. So we're one body, as Paul would say in Romans 12, 4 through 6, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. There's differences as we gather together as one body today. There's differences. There's rivalries. There's rivalries like Alabama and Auburn, Tennessee and whoever, right? We're against everybody. There's rivalry. There's preferences. This music or that music or this or that or... Calvinist or Arminians, Republican, Democrat. Oh, I'm now, see, now it's funny at first. Now it's like, oh, <laughs> nervous laughter, right? Have you heard of this? I mean, I hadn't heard of it until recently, so I don't know if you've heard of it. Homogeneous unity principle. This is actually a church growth strategy. And so it's not a church growth strategy that's based biblically. It's based businessly. Like it's a business model. And so what it says is basically that if you want your church to grow fast, focus on reaching one cultural group. If you want to reach as many people as possible, then let them be around people that they're most like. Basically saying just form churches based on what people's preferences are. That's not biblical. That's getting everybody together and say, listen, we all agree on these things, right? Let's, let's be a church. No, what, what's the one thing that unites us all? The blood of Christ. We were all alienated. We were all separated from the commonwealth. We've all been brought in. We need to remember that. David Platt, he says, you never find Paul saying to a Jewish person, you guys just stick together. You can grow your churches way faster by keeping the Gentiles out. Or saying to Gentiles, start your own churches. That's the best way to go. No, they're working hard to come together. They're sacrificing personal preferences because the church is not about their preferences. It's about displaying Christ's supremacy. So today, as we gather as a local body of believers, we gather together as the body. We gather together to display the unity that we found in the blood of Christ. We come together with different ages and a different race, different character, different gender, male and female. There's only two. 
backgrounds, cultures, gifts, talents, different educations. And we all come together because it's a witness to the world of the glory of God. As John 17, 21 says, that they may all be one. Jesus praying, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. There's power in the unity of the church because it's a testimony to the world that that God is real, that Jesus really is the Son of God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God's glory shines most clearly when different groups of people come together and he's the only explanation to why they're unified. When a church cares more about its comfort than it does its calling, it's living, it's not living out its purpose that God's called it to. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another are all postures of people who have been saved personally and corporately. There's dimensions to our salvation that are not just personal, it's corporate. As John MacArthur says, from birth to death, the natural inclination of every person is to look out for number one, to be, to do, and to have what he wants. Even believers are continually tempted to fall back into lives of self-will, self-interest, and in general self-centeredness. At the heart of sin is the ego the I. Self-centeredness is the root of man's depravity and the depravity into which every person since Adam and Eve except Jesus Christ has been born. Even Christians are still sinners, justified but still sinners in themselves. And when that sin is allowed to have its way in our flesh, conflict is inevitable. When two or more people are bent on having their own ways, they will soon be quarreling and arguing. Because their interests, concerns, and priorities sooner or later will conflict. There cannot possibly be harmony in a group, even a group of believers, whose desires, goals, purposes, and ideas are generated by egos. Few things demoralize, discourage, and weaken a church as much as bickering, backbiting, and fighting among its members. And few things are so effectively undermine its testimony before the world. Quarreling is a reality in the church because sinfulness and selfishness are other sins, are realities in the church. Because of quarreling, the father is dishonored. The son is disgraced. His people are demoralized and discredited. And the world is turned off and confirmed in unbelief. Fractured fellowship robs Christians of joy and effectiveness, robs God of glory, and robs the world of the true testimony of the gospel. How important is it that our salvation not only be a vertical restoration, but a horizontal restoration? It's because it displays the gospel. That though we are different, though we have different agendas, though we have different priorities, different different cultures, we're all gathered under one banner, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It unites us, and it's a beautiful display of God's goodness. I was reading about um, the Franco-Perugian War. 
I know, it sounds interesting. Well, in 1870, the French and German armies faced off on the night of Christmas Eve. And in the middle of this battle, one French soldier started walking towards the German lines. His comrades watched breathlessly, expecting to hear any instant a crack of a rifle that would end his life. And as he neared the enemy lines, he stopped and began singing. I will not sing. I learned my lesson last week. Noel, 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 born as the king of Israel. No shot rang out. Slowly, the Frenchman returned to his ranks. There was silence. Then from the German side came one lone soldier at the same spot and sang the German version of the same song. After each stanza, both armies united in a chorus. For a few minutes, Christ had brought peace to the battlefield. There are all types of banners that you can stand under and wave. All types of political, territorial, national, personal agendas that you can find yourself fighting for. But as believers, they're all lesser banners because we all stand under the banner of Jesus Christ and his blood. So as John Piper says, but let us also dwell on this, that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people, groups, to each other in one body in Christ. This too was the design of the death of Christ. Think on this. Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from your heart toward all other persons who are in Christ by faith, whatever the race. Let me ask you today, has the blood of Christ in your life taken away enmity, anger, disgust, jealousy, self-pity, fear, envy, hatred, malice, and indifference towards other believers in Christ. Right now, if there's any area of prejudice in your life, any area of racism, any area of political preference that you are holding up higher than you're holding up the blood of Jesus Christ, I plead with you to repent. Because his salvation is not just vertically, it's horizontally. It has a dimension in the way we interact with one another. So one in Christ by his sacrifice. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So A, because of his sacrifice, we find our peace in Christ, our unity in Christ, and the elimination of the division in Christ. So peace, his atonement. He's brought us back. You were once alienated, now you've been brought back. There's unity. Christ has made for himself one people, no longer two, but now one, the church. So you have believing Israel and you have believing Gentiles, all one church. And he's broken down the wall of hostility. Therefore, to resurrect dividing walls of hostility in the church is to contradict the gospel. Walls of hostility, what's Paul referring to? You got a couple of images. He could be referring to the Mosaic law, the dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles on matters of customs, food, drink, celebrations, restrictions, etc. Or it could be the fact that there really was a dividing wall, a four and a half foot tall wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the sanctuary. Either one, there's a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he says, by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so that making peace, he might reconcile us both 
to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Well, this, this abolishing, because of the sacrifice or keeping of laws, our behavior modification, our good works are not the basis for our identity as believers. It's Christ. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Abolishing, that should raise a, a flag, though, those of you who study scripture, because in Matthew 5.17, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So is this contradictory? Well, no, because when he talks about abolishing the law, he's, he's talking about abolishing the Jewish ceremonial laws, the sacrifices, the ceremonies regarding uncleanliness, the feasts, the festivals, the regulations that distinguish the Israelites from all other pagan nations, their dietary, their clothing restrictions, their Sabbath keeping, their circumcisions, their you name it. He's abolished this, but he's fulfilled the moral law. He's kept all the requirements to be the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without spot or blemish. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So there's peace. Through Jesus Christ, he declared it is finished. And since Christ on the cross fulfilled the moral law, taking away the condemnation, and since Christ on the cross abolished the ceremonial laws, we can now all boldly approach the throne of grace as his body of believers. We are one in Christ. Finally, one in Christ by his spirit. One in Christ by his spirit. So verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because of his spirit within us, we are one family. The local church, it's to be a family. It's a household of faith, as Paul would say to 1 Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul isn't referring here to the universal church. He's not referring to parachurch ministries. I don't think they had those back then. He's referring to the gathered body of believers in one place who are functioning as a family and a beacon of light in a lost community. We are to function as a family. Now, what is a family supposed to function like? There's a lot of dysfunction in families these days. So what is a family? Well, a family unit should be a safe place. It's where you go when you need comfort. It's where you go when you need shelter, when you need safety, when you need to be fed, when you need unconditional love, when you need care, when you need help, when you need encouragement, when you need advice. That's the family unit. That's where you go. Well, a family unit should be a place of comfort. It's where you take your shoes off. You ever think about church as a place where you take your shoes off? I don't mean like standing on holy ground. I mean, I guess that would work, but you take your shoes off, you let your hair down. You don't have to put on a show for anybody because you know what? At home, everybody knows who you really are. Imagine if church was a family where you could be yourself. A family unit is where you serve. It's where you share the load. It's where you do your chores. It's where you pay your bills. It's where you help out wherever's needed. 
It's where you treat each other as family members. First Timothy 5, 1 through 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The church is not to be a building we go to, it's not to be an event or a service that we attend, it's not to be a checkbox in our week. The church is to be a family. I can remember when I came and I found Metaview to be a family. I was 21 years old, which was just a few years ago, and I came here because I needed college credit to graduate. I had pretty much all but given up on the fact that I was going to do ministry, but I didn't want to sacrifice and change my major and get set behind another couple of years, so I needed some internship hours at a local church. So I came to a little, tiny, Baptist church in the middle of nowhere to get my internship hours. And over time, it became family. Over time, I began to find that these were people I could come to for encouragement, for care, for love. It was people that would help me in any way possible as a young adult. I remember it became family, and it's been family for over 22 years now. Up until that point, I had saw church as it only pertained to my needs, my wants, my preferences, and I shopped the supermarket of churches called the South Bible Belt of America in search of the right fit for my desires. But what I have grown to understand is that that is empty. The type of approach to that church leaves you selfish. It leaves you unsatisfied. It leaves your children disenchanted with what the real church really is. Church is a people to belong to. It's a people that welcome you in. It's a people that you can experience the corporate dimension of your salvation with rather than just a mere corporate display of Christian consumerism. Because of the spirit within us, we are being built up together. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul tells us to be a Christ-centered church where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, meaning that as we gather together, we gather together because of his word. We're growing in our understanding and our application of his word, and we're growing because the Holy Spirit is filling us and making us fruitful for ministry. We're being built up together. In closing, Tota Marita says, every person counts. We need one another's time, talent, treasure, love, resources, encouragement, and rebuke. We are to live the Christian life together as a multi-ethnic temple centered in Christ, rooted in the teaching of Scripture. So my question is, would you like to be part of a family? I'd love for you to say that this is where God has called you to be a family, that you would love to put down your roots and be a member at Medivue Baptist Church. And if that's you, then I would encourage you to sign up for our membership class that's on May 21st. You can scan the code out in the lobby. You can talk to Matt or myself after service. But more than that, I want God to call you to a place where you can be family. If it's not Medivue, then I encourage you to find family. Find a place to grow. Find a place to be one. To set aside your preferences, to set aside your agendas, to set aside your lesser banners 
and be united under the banner of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because it is a beautiful gift of salvation.